Okay, if you would, please turn to the Gospel of Luke. <clears throat> I'll be reading Luke chapter 16, verses 14 through 18. Luke 16, 14 through 18. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed Jesus. And He said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. The law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached and everyone forces his way into it. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. Let's pray. Jesus, I need the constant operation of Your Holy Spirit to cause my mind and my heart to be faithful to Your Word. To deal with it carefully. To say what it says accurately. And we all are desperate to have ears to hear the intended meaning of this text by the working of Your Spirit upon our hearts which constantly need Your softening power. So do that in our midst. Do marvelous things through Your Holy Word in this passage, through this sermon, this morning. To the glory of Your name, Jesus. To the glory of Your Holy Father. Amen. We Americans have in our DNA rebellion against sovereign authority. We have a declaration of independence. We don't want a king. We want to govern ourselves. And that's a really good idea for men's government in society on earth. But when good riddance to King George turns to good riddance to all authority, including King Jesus, then we are in real trouble. Again, this beginning of the week, when I sat down and read what comes next in Luke, in this passage, I, could, I just went, what in the world again on the first reading? There's going to be another hard shell to crack open the meaning of what's going on because in your first read, it just seems like a bunch of disconnected statements of Jesus. Verse 14 mentions the Pharisees scoffing, ridiculing Jesus because of His teaching on money. And then as you continue to read, the rest of the passage has nothing to do with money. And then in verse 18, at the end of the passage, 
His statement on divorce just seems to come out of nowhere and be disconnected from the context. But in reading again and again and slowly and thinking through this passage, this is what I think we are to see this morning. That what is really happening and what Luke intends for us to see is a clash between the Jewish leadership and Jesus' leadership. In other words, what's going on here, and it is a cohesive unit, what's going on here is this theme about authority. See, the Pharisees, they protest. We keep the law. But Jesus brings up the issue of divorce in order to show them, as an example, they only keep the law when it fits with their immediate felt desires. And they'll find a way to justify themselves with all kinds of traditions. Much like many Christians today on the issue of divorce and remarriage. When God's ways don't fit people's felt needs, religious people, the Pharisees here, invent ways to dodge God's law. The issue in this passage is authority. Who is it that really enlightens God's people, is it Jesus? Or is it the Pharisees and their scribes and the leadership that tries to guide Israel who mock this Jesus? That's how he sets it up. And that's what Jesus' statement is about when he refers to the law and the prophets having their period, and now that period is ended, and now is the period of the kingdom of God, with a king, with the right to rule in His authority, in His ministry, in His first coming all the way through to His second coming and throughout eternity. And what we see Jesus say about His authority up against Moses is that the standards of the law not merely outwardly, but applied to the core of the human heart, those remain. And Jesus' words about divorce are not just an illustration of the law of Moses. They are an illustration of His unique kingly authority with the law of Moses applying the intended meaning to people's hearts which was always the goal of the law of Moses. The passage here this morning as a whole is saying that the Pharisees' way of looking at the law, the books of Moses, Hebrew Scripture, you can include that with the law of the prophets, their way of looking at it, interpreting it, was all wrong. They just absolutely missed the point. And that's why, Luke is letting us see, that's why they could not recognize the one to whom the law pointed when he was standing right in front of them. They 
ridiculed him. And so Jesus shows that the law is promise. It looked forward. And he has come to fulfill it. And the heart of the law, once he comes as king to fulfill it, is the transformation of his disciples' hearts, which was always the goal of the law of Moses. And so as an example, his teaching on divorce and remarriage. Jesus is saying, when I savingly invade your heart by the Spirit and new birth. There is a hatred of divorce. And how it lies about God and His Son and His Son's faithfulness to the bride of Christ. So let's go to the text. Start in verse 14. But remember, verse 14 is now picking up with what we saw last week in chapter 16 of Luke, verses 1 through 13. Jesus had been teaching his disciples, not the Pharisees. He's teaching the disciples about finances and about being generous with their finances for kingdom purposes. But of course, there were Pharisees. They're lurking, always watching him. So let's pick up at the end of what Jesus says to the disciples and move on. Verse 13, he closes out with, No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Now the Pharisees who are there are starting to fume. And so the next thing Luke says to us is this now. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things and they ridiculed Jesus. You can't serve God in money, so the Pharisees and prosperity preachers today feel threatened. And they respond with mockery, with ridicule. That word ridicule means literally to turn one's nose up at. <laughs> they hate Jesus' teaching. Why? Because of sin. Whether it's a Pharisee, a very religious person, or whether it's a proclaimed atheist. Don't be fooled that the atheist's real reason is, well, the creation story is not scientific. The real reason is, if there is a God who spoke this universe into existence, there are moral consequences. And the sinful heart hates that reality. Unrepentant sin must ridicule Jesus' teaching. Remember how Jesus said, He has come to convict and to send the Spirit to convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and the judgment to come. And you know, our culture in America today 
is blatantly everywhere ridiculing Jesus' teaching on sexual morality. On marriage, what is it? On divorce. The Pharisees here in this context had to turn their snobbish noses up at Jesus because Jesus constantly pointed directly at their sinful hearts. In the context, we just saw it. Their love of money. He just he, he proclaimed to these self-proclaimed law keepers, you don't love God. And the other example he will give in this text is their constant twisting of Holy Scripture which turned them into adulterers because of their unbiblical remarriages. So, Jesus, we see Luke says, the Pharisees, they're there, they're lovers of money, and they ridicule Him. And now then, Jesus looks beyond the heads of His disciples to the Pharisees and says in verse 15, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. The Pharisees were very meticulous in keeping the outward laws and their interpretations of them in the oral traditions. Watch me wash properly before the meal. Watch me pray. Watch me put money into the temple offering box. Watch me fast. You see how gloomy my face is? It's how they live. And Jesus says, you're doing all of this stuff to please or to be exalted in the sight of other persons. Not as an open heart before the living God who examines our thoughts and our motives. They were filled with pride and arrogance, which God hates. And Jesus directly rips the mask of their self-righteousness off their face and exposes their heart. And He said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men but God knows your hearts. Because the truth is this, whatever is exalted among men is detestable or an abomination or literally stinks in the sight of God. Saving faith as opposed to mere religion, it is a matter of the heart before God. You remember how Paul described what happens to us sinners who come to saving faith in Christ? In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6, he says it this way, For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, 
the one who spoke and the universe came into existence, he says that very God is the one Christian. He's the one who has shone, shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That's what it is to be a Christian. And when that light of God's holiness shines, it exposes the filth of our hearts, of our sinfulness, and the depths that we never dreamed how rotten we were. And when that happens, when new birth by the Spirit God's shining happens. This trying to justify ourselves before other people stops. We're no longer at that point by God's mercy looking for excuses or in comparison to other people. We're looking for a Savior. The reality of God's perfect holiness up against our sinfulness brings about the mercy of the Holy Spirit wrought fear, dread. And that's where the gospel comes in because now we have ears to hear the message that we need the righteousness of another because we don't have any. That we need a substitute who could somehow justly receive what we deserved for our sin and remove our guilt forever. And that's what Jesus did in becoming human, in taking our place, and living in perfect obedience, sinless obedience as a genuine human being before God's law. And He did it on our behalf. Amen. And then He was slaughtered. Not for His own sin. He had none. But for our sins. And slaughtered on the cross, justly receiving the wrath of God. God raised him from the dead so that the gospel is if you fled to him, we are absolutely pardoned forever. And we are clothed with Jesus' human righteousness now as sinners and for all eternity in the resurrection. For those of us who have fled to Christ with new hearts, it can no longer be said, according to our text here, you are those who justify yourselves before men. But God knows your hearts because we know the truth that what is exalted among men is an abomination to God. Instead, the way Paul put it is we say, yes, yes, yes. In 1 Thessalonians 2.4, he said, we, we believers, we preachers, we speak not to please men, but to please God who tests our hearts. The implication 
is that if you are not living openly before God, if you are not judging your own sin, beginning at the thought level, not merely the action level, if you're not humbly trusting in Jesus' perfect human righteousness lived, but you're trusting in your own, the implication is that you're living like a Pharisee and not a disciple. Christians do not live in order to impress other people with their spirituality. Christians live as dependent sinners clinging to the cross of Jesus. Clinging to the promises that were purchased on the cross. And not only did the Pharisees then butcher the point of the Mosaic Law, but now in our text, Jesus goes on to assert that the old era of the law has given way to His unique, kingly authority over people's hearts. You see it in verse 16? The law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached. Jesus has just said that with His coming, He represents the new era in God's redemptive history. There was the old, the law and the prophets. There's the new, the preaching of the gospel of the kingdom. What the law and the prophets proclaimed, He's saying, is now here. In His ministry. It's fulfilled. John the Baptist was the transitional figure. In a sense, he had one foot in each era. The old and the new. He was the one that the prophet Malachi foretold of who would prepare the way of the Lord. And Jesus, He's speaking right now, and He is in humanity that Lord. He is the God of Israel. He is Yahweh who has become a human being and who is speaking directly at this moment to the Pharisees. Saying, the law and the prophets they were until, until is a, a word that has to do with time. They were until. So, so that era, the era of promise, he says, is over. Because the era of fulfillment in his coming is here. See it? Since then, John introducing me, since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached. Do you remember back in chapter 7 of Luke how, how Jesus said it? Starting with verse 26. What then did you go out to see? Talking to all his fellow Jews 
referring to John the Baptist. What did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, quote, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. And yet, the one who is least in this new era, in the kingdom of God, is greater than he, the last prophet of the old era. John is the transitional figure. And since then, in Jesus' ministry, the kingdom of God is preached, which means the new era has come, and the law and the prophets, as an era, has ceased. God's redemptive plan has turned over a new leaf in the coming of Jesus. And what was happening before, particularly this, the cocooning, separating, a small segment of humanity, Israel, cocooning them by their codes and ceremonies, religious regulations, with the declaring that one is coming. The Son of David is coming. That era, Jesus says, is over. Because what it promised has arrived. Fulfillment of the promised new covenant. And that's what Jesus is preaching in His ministry. And with that preaching, Jesus says, something is happening. See it there at the end of verse 16? The kingdom of God is preached, and everyone forces his way into it. Now, now that clause is actually more difficult than it appears, particularly in the original. See, in the Greek text, here's, here's the real question. Is Jesus saying people are forcing their way? They're, they're desperate. They just want, like you want to get into the Led Zeppelin concert in 1977. You're forcing your way into it. Is he mean it like that, where people are desperate when they hear the gospel preached through Jesus, and that's what's happening in his ministry? Does he mean that? Or is he saying, since John, the kingdom of God is being preached and everyone is forcefully urged to enter it? Can you see the difference? See, because both of those translations are possible. I mean, because the Greek word is biazetai, and it's the same spelling for either the middle, I'm not helping most of you. Yeah, no, but there's a reason. There's the same spelling for the middle voice and the passive voice. And if it's middle, it means what's happening is what we've been seeing through Luke. Tax collectors, prostitutes, what the Pharisees would call sinners, people they despised. They're desperately flocking to Jesus and to enter into the kingdom. That's what it would mean if it's a middle voice. If it's passive, it would mean, in the sense, it's been being preached with this this 
urging, pressing against people's souls, come into the kingdom and be saved. Okay. Well, I think it's in the context most likely middle. Jesus does mean to you Pharisees who stand outside while this is being preached, and it's irritating you guys, we've seen this in the context of Luke flowing, it's irritating you that all these people that you despise so much are flocking, pressing into the kingdom as they hear the message preached. That's what he's saying. It's true today of those who are being saved. Salvation requires strong desire. Effort. Because what salvation is, is a response to this message that a heart realizes, oh my goodness, it's true. The eternal destiny of my consciousness and existence is at stake in the message of Jesus. When we hear that, you realize nothing, absolutely nothing in life is more important than pressing in to that kingdom. Okay, so there he is at this point now. The old era is past. People are pressing in with the message of the fulfillment of what the law promised. The Messiah, Son of David, the Kingdom of God. And at this point now, in this passage, this big question hangs in the air. If the Kingdom of God has come, and if the period of the law and the prophets has passed, has the law of God ceased to function? Jesus answers in verse 17. No. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. Not even a dot. Not even a mark. In the Greek it's keriah. It, it literally means little horn. He's most likely talking about Hebrew letters. This little teeny mark that will distinguish the difference between the letter dalet or the letter resh. They look exactly the same, except you get this little horn with a dollet on the right. Or the difference between a, a hay and a hat, which would change the entire meaning of a word in a text in the Hebrew Scripture. He says none of those little marks will pass away before heaven and earth pass away. Now what does that mean? His point is that what God has spoken through Moses will be fulfilled. 
every mark in the Hebrew text. Jesus is directly telling the Pharisees, I have come with authority, but you self-proclaimed lovers of the law totally ignore the law of Moses. Because if you loved the actual meaning in the text of Moses, you would be pressing into the kingdom. And you're not. If you actually loved and obeyed Moses, you would love me, Jesus, and everything I'm about. Because the law pointed to me. The sacrificial system pointed to me, Jesus says. The priesthood pointed to me. Do you remember what Jesus told the Jewish leaders in John chapter 5? In verse 39, He said this directly to them. You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness of Me. For if you believed Moses, you would believe Me. Because he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, which Jesus is saying you don't, how in the world will you believe me? Jesus comes not to undo the law, but he comes to fulfill it. In that, It all pointed to Him personally. I'm going to read a large passage. Just try to follow. Turn there if you want. And see the way that the Apostle Paul says it. Romans 9. Start with verse 31. Paul writes, Israel... And he was one of them. He's a Jew. He was a Pharisee. Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they totally misunderstood it. Okay, he didn't say it that way, but that's what Paul means here. Why? Because in all their religiosity, they did not pursue the law by faith, by a heart of trust. But as if, which it wasn't, but as if it were based on their works. And thus what happened? This is what happened. When the one to whom the law pointed showed up, they tripped over him. That's what he says. They stumbled over the stumbling stone who is Jesus. As it is written in the law and the prophets prophesied it. 
Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. And they fell flat on their face. And Paul goes on, Brothers, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them, my fellow Jewish brothers and sisters, is that they may be saved. Because I bear them witness that they do have a zeal for God, but it's not according to knowledge. Because being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own righteousness, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Because Christ is the telos, the goal of the law, the end, the purpose of the law for righteousness to everybody who believes. They just totally missed it and they're missing it in our text. It's why Jesus is saying what He's saying. Now, let's think about implications of what this means. I'm going to use a couple different terms, so just try to pay attention closely. Law, but I'm going to modify it in, in a couple different ways. So what are we talking about, the law? What does this mean? First, moral law. Moral law stems from God's very nature. And therefore, it is eternally in force. For instance, what do you mean by moral law? I mean, laws that, that are moral because God is. And there are examples in the law of Moses where he gives such a thing. For instance, love the Lord your God with all your heart your mind, your soul, and your strength. That never ceases to be applicable. For instance, do not steal the property of another. That never ceases to be applicable for God's creation. Never murder. It has never passed away as applicable. Do not commit adultery. Okay, you get the idea? These are moral laws. Another term. Ceremonial law. See, there are ceremonial aspects of law all through the Mosaic law in the Old Testament. Stuff like how you circumcise your male child on the eighth day. Well, Gentiles don't have to do it. It's not a moral law in this way. That it, it is right or wrong in and of itself and applicable to all humanity. It's just, it's just not. And there are tons of ceremonial laws for the Jews. 
and not for the Gentiles that God had given for His particular purposes in redemptive history. Like how you wash, how you, if you became defiled, how you become clean in order to offer sacrifices again. The festivals, new moons, Sabbaths, etc. They're ceremonial laws. And Jesus came and He fulfilled the purpose of all those ceremonial laws into which they pointed. So that since His coming, those laws are no longer in force or applicable or binding on His disciples. Jew or Gentile. One more term. Civil law. There are civil aspects of the law that were particularly for the nation of Israel as a nation. As we look at many of those civil laws in the Old Testament, we can glean a lot of wisdom for secular governments, but they are not binding on Jesus' disciples. You following me? Okay. No? Yeah? Okay, now listen carefully. When it comes to the moral law, the universal laws of right and wrong, and those which are clearly laid out in Moses and reaffirmed and even taken to greater heights by Jesus Himself. Those moral laws. Get this. Jesus came and fulfilled the doing of them on behalf of all who will be saved. When it comes to the moral law, shunning evil, doing right, obeying God's moral laws, no person can ever be made right with God by their performance of them. Period. Why? Because we're all innately sinners. We have all broken God's laws. The only thing the law can do for us apart from Christ, is shine the light on the clarity of where we broke Him. What the law of God in the Scripture does for all humanity, other than Jesus, is expose our sin and condemn us. And then, when we who are condemned by the law, and the light shines, and we see that, and we hear the good news of the message about the One. The One to whom the law was always pointing. The One who came and obeyed the moral law sinlessly. Perfect who obeyed God perfectly 
on our behalf. Oh, when we hear the message that the one who came and fulfilled the sacrificial system by becoming the sin offering. When we hear that there's the one who fulfilled the priesthood in the law by offering up as a priest Himself to be slaughtered on a cross. When we hear that, and by God's mercy, we see it. We hear it with the way Jesus says it, with ears to hear. We are instantly made right with God. Jesus' humanity, not my wretched sinfulness, is what is put to my account in heaven. Christ's righteousness imputed to sinners whom He's saving. And we see His death, suffering, and slaughter was the punishment for my sins. The gospel. We're absolutely pardoned if you fled to Christ. And not just that. His perfect life lived where Adam failed and you failed is your life before God representing you forever. What a gospel. Now the question. Okay. Now what? Is there still for us who are believers right and wrong? Good and evil? Obedience? In sin, are we under obligation to our Lord Jesus to avoid the one, sin, evil, and to do the other, that which is righteous? That's the question. Are Christians supposed to walk by the moral law. The moral standards of Moses and Jesus. Absolutely. We are to walk by faith. That means we are to walk in trusting that the lawgiver knows what he's doing. Now, why are we supposed to do that if we are believers? The reason we do it is not, not in order to become right with God. But we do it because we have been made right with God through Jesus 
Christ. The new life of the indwelling person of the Holy Spirit is changing, sanctifying, working, and causing the hearts of all who have truly fled to Christ. Causing our hearts to delight in the law and hate our remaining sin. As Bob read this morning in Romans 7. You see, the power of the gospel of grace doesn't do away with right and wrong. It doesn't do away with God's biblical standards. But the power of grace empowers His people to love God's law. To do God's law. And so, with the new era of the new covenant that Jesus has brought, He does not lower the standards with this new era. In fact, He ups it. You see, if you've been following through the Gospel of Luke, it's become really clear how good the Pharisees were at tweaking the law. At finding and creating loopholes in the law of Moses. We've seen it with the Sabbath that day, haven't we? Over and over. Loved to condemn others. They had all kinds of secret ways to save their own donkey. And, that's the other thing that's going on in Jesus' mind. They had really slick ways to deal with the issue of divorce and remarriage. You see, there's a little verse in Moses where Moses permits divorce. Now, why did Moses permit divorce? Divorce? Because of sin. Because of unregenerate hearts. Because of the vast majority of God's people, Israel, who were not born again. That's why it was permitted. The Pharisees took that for all it's worth and twisted it. And many of them had many marriages for very trivial reasons they would divorce and they had their self-justification in misconstruing Moses. Okay? Let's hold it there now. Let's watch our text. The law and the prophets, they were until John. He's come. He's introduced the Savior, Jesus, the King who is to come. The law and the prophets, as an era, ends. Jesus, with His kingly authority, begins. And remember, that is the main theme of this whole passage. And so, Jesus gives a clear 
example of the law of marriage not passing away. And with his personal authority as King Jesus, he gets to the very heart of Moses, the very heart of God's law on marriage. In verse 18, everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. Jesus came not not, not only to fulfill the law in His life and sacrificial death and resurrection, but He came to take His people to the radical understanding of the law and a deep-seated obedience from the heart by the Spirit to the law that is not based on law, but is based on Jesus Himself. Which was always the purpose of the law. Which was always the intention of the law. That Christ, that Yahweh, becoming man, forever would be the foundation of law lovers. Listen to how Jesus put it in Matthew 7. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them but to fulfill them. And then what does He do? He goes on to give six examples of His fulfilling the law. He gives six examples of what it looks like for my disciples that I'm creating in relation to the law. Let me just give you two examples. So he goes on to say in verse 21 of chapter 5, Matthew, You have heard that it was said of old in Moses, You shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Or in verse 27, you have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. I mean, he's a radical. And maybe because of what he purchased on the cross, actual persons being saved from eternity past, And their experience of it will happen in this life by the Holy Spirit, changing their heart, filling the new covenant, giving them a new heart that would 
love his law, according to Ezekiel and Jeremiah. Maybe he knows what he's talking about, his king. See, now, our passage here in Luke, remember, it is all about authority. And Jesus is saying, I have come to give you life and to conquer the hardness of your hearts and to empower you to stay married so that you will model to the world what my covenant between Christ and the church looks like. The law, creation in Genesis. Jesus says, when you marry, you marry for life. And even if the state of California ends up issuing you a certificate of divorce, and you find a pastor, which you can easily find pastors to do this, or you find a judge to do a ceremony and marry you to another person. And after the party and the eating and the fun, you and your new bride or your new groom go off to a hotel room to begin your honeymoon and have sexual relations. You have just committed Adultery. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. This verse might need another sermon. I'm going to close right now. I'm going to close by summarizing everything I just said. By summarizing the whole text. Because I'm going to read my paraphrase of it, which is to rewrite it in differing words to bring out what I'm understanding the meaning of the text as a whole, and then we'll close. So, Serge, you guys can come, come on up. Jesus says to the mocking Pharisees, you guys pride yourselves on keeping the law, but God knows your self-centered, man-centered, godless hearts. The proof of you totally misconstruing Moses is that everything he pointed to is right in front of you. And you ridicule him. The old era of the law and the prophets is over since I've come with the authority of the eternal king. And what is ironic is that the very ones you guys despise, the poor, the sick, the tax collectors, the prostitutes, they're stampeding to get into this kingdom while you stand outside and mock. When I say that there has been a transition from the law to the gospel, I don't mean that the law is set aside, but rather it has been fulfilled in me. For example, I uphold 
the true intention of God's law regarding divorce and remarriage. But you Pharisees neatly set it aside by your sinful, man-centered interpretations. Let's pray. Father, no matter where people are in their station of life at this moment, singles who have never been married, married people or people who have been divorced and people who have been divorced and remarried, may the power of the gospel work and ring true that all who repent and cling to Jesus are washed clean forever. Oh, may the gospel may the gospel of grace fill this place and fill our hearts that we carry with us this week in powerful intimate fellowship with you with you our Holy Father by the power of your spirit Jesus' name.